Hi, and welcome to The Brain Made Plain. I'm your host, Jonathan Peel, and with me today is Dr. Morgan Berenz. Morgan, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan. To start with, could you just tell us a little bit about the research in your lab? Yeah. So my lab is a cognitive neuroscience lab. At the core of all of the questions we ask is trying to understand how the brain, this squishy mass in between our ears, gives rise to cognition, how it lets us think and feel and see and remember things. And specifically, uh, we're interested in how the act of seeing something is related to our ability to later remember it. So uh, there's a theme in cognitive neuroscience and psychology more, more generally to put boxes and arrows around different aspects of cognition or to make these anatomical modules in the brain and pin a cognitive process to a given brain region. So you might have heard that the hippocampus is for memory and the ventral visual stream, part of the back of the brain, is for perception. Our work is challenging this notion of these uh, functional, functional anatomically segregated modules and trying to push the question of to what extent are these different cognitive processes integrated in the brain? So might a brain structure like the hippocampus, in addition to being very important for memory, also be very important for perception, being able to see something and make sense of it, and then later also remember it? I mean, I really like the um, how you put that and sort of maybe breaking down the barriers between these traditional modules. Uh, and I can tell you, you know, when I teach introduction to cognitive neuroscience, I do it exactly the traditional way. So there's like a chapter on vision and we talk about the eye and the retina um, and the LGN and back to visual cortex. And we talk about like vision stuff. Uh, and then there's like a quiz and then, you know, a later chapter is on memory, and we talk about the hippocampus and how the hippocampus helps us remember things. Um, and obviously, uh, part of this is trying to have a simple entrance into the field, but I think that kind of thinking permeates not only um, introductory classes, but I think a lot of the a lot of the research literature too. Absolutely, you know, I think that's why this modular view has stayed a- around for so long. It's it's how our textbooks are organized. It's how our departments are organized. You know, oh, you know, she's the vision professor. He's the memory professor. Or we're hiring in the area of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's also really, it makes it a lot easier to teach, to divvy these things up um, mm-hmm. and, you know, create these little units um, that are digestible. And, you know, I also, I'm a researcher in this, you know, field. I've spent my whole career doing this and I still want to teach like that sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. um, because yeah, it just, it, it, it's intuitive and it's easy to teach, but I think it's, you know, at the core it's, it's wrong, or <laughs> at least it, it fails to appreciate just how dynamic and interconnected mm-hmm. cognition is. Mm-hmm. So I, I, we will get into a little bit more of the details of, of how you view um, vision and perception and memory. But to step back a little bit, how did you originally get interested in, in cognitive neuroscience or, or in, in these issues? Yeah, so it was, um, I was going to medical school. That was my plan uh, in undergraduate. and But I was fortunate enough that as part of my undergraduate degree, I needed to do an honors thesis. 
And I was more fortunate still to get involved in the lab of uh, Mark Baxter. And just being at the forefront of science, um, asking questions and having the freedom to answer them, to, to not only to ask the questions, but then to figure out how I'm going to answer this question in a rigorous, clean way where we, you know, only let one variable rotate. Um, that was so satisfying to me um, mm -hmm. that I, I never looked back. Um, I think it was also the lab community uh, going from being kind of a anonymous pre-med undergraduate to being a uh, a part of something to, to being a part of a lab and to have a PI who respected my opinions to have a community, uh, in my lab. Um, it was the best thing that I did in my undergraduate career. And, um, I wanted to replicate that for myself for the you know rest of my career. Mm -hmm. And, and was it sort of like perception and memory or one or the other that you like initially grabbed onto, or was it more science generally, or how did that work? No, yes, yeah, that's a great question. So I was actually in a you know a rat lab, um, and I guess what I grabbed onto. So I was always uh, interested in research that ultimately you know has a connection in that's really salient in terms of the human experience, mm -hmm. um, and I think that memory um, and the loss of memory is uh, one of the most, how to put it, um, you know, you see someone with Alzheimer's disease and um, it just, it, it lays bare the price that we pay for having such a fully developed human brain. Mm -hmm. The fact that we can lose it, uh, mm -hmm. we can lose the, we can lose our ability to think, to remember. Um, and that, you know, if you watch somebody go through that, um, that it's, it's so important to understand what is happening. Um, what is happening at the, you know, what is robbing them of this thing that makes us human. Um, and so I guess I, uh, I always wanted my research to have that human connection, something that, um, I could put a face to. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so for me, you know, for my, uh, you know, a family experience with Alzheimer's disease, that was the disease that interested me, um, the most, uh, and memory in and of itself, uh, was just, it's such an incredible gift that evolution has given us this ability to go back and travel back in time and relive things that happened to us and close our eyes and smell that thing again, or hear your baby's laugh or, you know, all of these moments that make us who we are as people. And, and the fact that we can do that uh, just sitting right here in our chair. Um, and, and then also the tragedy that some people can't do this and they lose that ability. So that was the, I knew that I was really interested in memory because of its, salience to the human experience and because of the kind of profound clinical societal implications with the prevalence of memory disorders. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of where I started, um, that I wanted to study memory. But from that point on, I was really open to anything. You know, in my undergraduate, I watched rats dig in cups, um, like large, old, fat, uh -huh. 
aged rats <laughs> dig through <laughs> dig through cups and smell various body oils that I got at uh, the body shop. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, when the nitty gritty of science is the, the day to day is rats digging in cups or combing through your code, trying to figure out why it's crashing. Um, so, you know, that, yeah, the day to day has this nitty gritty kind of, you know, in the coal mines, figuring it out. Uh, but at the high level, you know, those questions, um, are so motivating to me, mm-hmm. but you have to, you know, watch some rats digging cups to, to get some of these answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really cool. Before we get into some of the like specifics of some research studies, I wonder if we could just take a minute to, or if you could just take a minute to kind of lay out the anatomy a little bit and sort of, mm-hmm. um, you know, from the, the visual cortex, which is in the occipital lobe at the back of the brain, you know, there's this, um, what's often referred to as the ventral visual stream and maybe, yeah, just kind of walk us through that and maybe how people have at least historically thought about the processing that, that takes place there. Yeah. So the ventral visual stream, as you say, starts at the very back of the brain, the occipital cortex, and it moves uh, forward on the ventral surface of the brain. So that's the bottom side of the brain. Um, starting in the back, moves forward ventrally, so right can't see me, but I'm showing you on my, uh, on my head, uh-huh. um, move sort from the back of the brain, uh, farther forward, farther forward, farther forward until, uh, the ventral visual stream hits the medial temporal lobes. Um, and so it was thought that the ventral visual stream starts in the occipital lobes and moves forward along the bottom of the brain up until it hits uh, a part of the brain called IT cortex, inferotemporal cortex. And what the ventral visual stream, everyone agrees that the ventral visual stream is this processing pathway in the brain that is critical for the perceptual analysis of objects. So an object is placed before you right now. I'm looking at the microphone uh, that I am speaking into, and it's comprised of all sorts of low-level individual features, and those features come together to make kind of simple conjunctions. So there's various lines and textures and colors that come together to make the various components of this microphone that I'm looking at. And as I'm staring at this, my ventral visual stream is putting together all of these features in this hierarchical organization. So very simple features are processed, like line orientations are processed in uh, the occipital lobe in what's called V1. And then conjunctions of those features are processed in farther in, in regions of the ventral visual stream that are farther forward. And as you move forward uh, in the brain, the representations, the, the kinds of features that these brain regions are processing are of increasing complexity. So it's this hierarchy of visual complexity with each uh, brain region in this hierarchy handling something that is increasingly complex. All right. Well, why don't we switch gears a little bit and talk about a specific uh, a study that you did. Um, so this is a paper from 2012 called Intact Memory for Irrelevant Information Impairs Perception in Amnesia. And so could you just tell us a little bit about like at this point in, in the journey that you've been talking about, what were the main questions you were asking and, and how you went about it? Yeah, so this was actually the last paper that I did uh, in my time in the United Kingdom, the last paper of my postdoc. I I literally collected the final data two days before getting on a plane and moving to Canada to start my faculty position. 
Uh, so it's a real kind of um, a moment in time. It's the, it's the end of an era um, mm-hmm. uh, for me and my career. Um, and the start of a lot of other, you know, the start of interesting, a lot of interesting questions, I think, that spun off of this work. Okay, so, so the idea that we were working from is that patients that have memory disorders due to damage to the medial temporal lobe, um, they're missing the most complex level of object representation. So they have no problem seeing the simple single features or even conjunctions of those features. So if they look at a face, they can see the eyes, they can see the eyebrows, they just have a lot of trouble putting all of those features together into a cohesive whole to make sense of to make sense of all of those face components and say that is Jonathan or being able to recognize Jonathan from different viewpoints or different different uh, lighting um, and and being able to remember Jonathan's face later so um, so the idea wasn't that these these patients with amnesia were had gross perceptual deficits. That was absolutely not the case. And, you know, they had lived for decades with damage to this part of the brain. So they had come up with excellent strategies for being able to cope in, in a, in a world where they couldn't see where they, where they had problems kind of putting all of the features together to make a cohesive whole. Mm -hmm. They were, they, they came up with strategies to really emphasize single features. So when looking at two faces and saying, are those the same or different? We noticed that they would really focus on individual features like the eyebrows and they would make their discriminations just based on those single features. So we wanted to design a study where we made it really hard for them to use those single features. Um, and we wanted to really get a handle on, um, on exactly, we wanted to have control over how these different objects were built. We needed to use kind of contrived lab-based objects, non-real world objects, where we had complete control over the various features that went into these objects. And so what we did, we designed these kind of blobby-like objects, and we knew exactly what three features we were going to change across the object. So the objects had an outer shape, an inner shape, and a fill pattern. And across the different objects, we could uh, vary the extent to which those, those features overlapped. So, um, you know, sometimes in these studies, we, uh, just as a shorthand, we represent the different features by letters. So let's say that the um, we might have object A, B, C, where A refers to the outer shape, B refers to the inner shape, and C refers to the fill pattern. So then we might ask a participant to look at object A, B, C, and compare it to object um, D, B, C, where that those two objects differ only in terms of their outer shape. So they're very, very visually similar. And can... Um, uh, can these patients that have damage to uh, their medial temporal lobe, can they see the difference between these two objects? And so because, um, so I'm not sure if that's clear, but so what we were really trying to do was make it so there was so much overlap between these two objects that the single feature that, di- that di- differentiated them 
was really hard to find. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you really had to look at these objects as a cohesive whole to find it. Uh, and we found um, that these patients, again, they're masters of this single feature strategy. And when they see these two objects, ABC and versus DBC, at the beginning of the experiment, they were pretty good. So we had them do, I think it was 72 trials of these really complex discriminations. Are these two objects the same or different? So at the beginning, they were okay. You know, they could, it, it, um, I think it was taxing for them, but they were able to zero in on those two different features, A versus D. They could, they could find that. But then there was so much what we call interference. So many of these features repeated. And they had done so many of these trials that the parts of their brain the, that were still intact, these uh, brain regions farther back in the ventral visual stream, those representations became overwhelmed. Um, and they were no longer able to solve that discrimination. So this kind of almost like memory for these lingering features for that discrimination between feature A versus feature D impaired their performance on later trials. So they mm-hmm. might see another object now, DEF, but they have, they, they'd been viewing so many of these very similar objects and the single feature representations in, in the back of their brain became overloaded and were no longer able to solve these discriminations. And so they, that's when their impairments started to emerge. So it was like this interference from these low-level features started to impair their performance on these perceptual tasks. And so in a way, I mean, interference is really interesting, right? Because it's the memory. It's, if, you, if you had no memory, there would be no interference, right? Because all of these previous exposures would just be gone. But it's actually hanging on to them that's the thing that's in, that's well, interfering with your performance. Exactly. It's that intact memory for these features impairs perception in cases with memory disorders. Mm-hmm. So just that sentence, you know, on the face of it, it makes no sense if we think about the brain, if we think about the medial temporal lobe as a memory system. How do we have patients that have damage to a memory system show memory for features, which impairs their perception. It's clear that these boundaries are not, uh, are, are, are not the way that we should be. Uh, they, they lose their descriptive power mm-hmm. um, because it's not, we have intact memory impairing perception um, in cases that have these memory disorders. So um, it's not the right way to be divvying up the brain. Right. And so, and just to make sure I'm, I'm going to summarize it um, correctly, uh, the issue is that if you have a damaged hippocampus, then you have trouble with this holistic conjunctive um, comparison. So you're forced to do single features, but the single feature strategy, which is supported by other regions, um, then you get into trouble because of all this interference. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So yeah. so really, it, it, it's, it's the, the damage is changing your strategy, and that strategy is then more vulnerable to... To interference with these low-level features because you're seeing so many of them. Exactly, exactly. So they could. So in in one of the experiments in that paper, they started out performing okay or close to okay, but then um, that strat because they could use that single feature strategy, but that fell apart 
uh, mm-hmm. due to this overwhelming interference and they could no longer use that strategy and they didn't have those conjunctive representations uh, to overcome, to, to use instead of that single feature strategy. Mm-hmm. So then yep. kind of the implication of that is when you have an intact hippocampus that's supporting. So if, if I was going to ask you, um, well, I guess I will ask you. So then what, what does that mm-hmm. tell us about what the hippocampus does in perception? So it is representing, it's representing these uh, stimuli at the highest level of complexity. So these unique representations of what makes a, you know, a given scene uh, distinct from a visually similar uh, scene. Um, So it's, um, it's, so, well, specifically for this uh, neuron paper, because we're talking about objects, it's the perirhinal cortex. The hippocampus is at the next level of complexity when talking about uh, scenes and the way that different objects come together to make a spatial array, which makes a scene, and how those objects actually relate across time, which makes an event. Um, but so what the, uh, the the part of the medial temporal lobe that's damaged in these patients, um, the perirhinal cortex, it's representing these objects at a fully specified conjunctive Uh, object representation that has sort of all of the information about that object. And subsequent work we've done has shown that these representations also have uh, semantic uh, meaning. So the the visual features and the semantic features of these objects are intertwined. Oh, great. So you you glossed over, understandably, a really important point that I want to come back to. And so that's the um, you've mentioned how the perirhinal cortex and the hippocampus are different regions of the medial temporal lobe. Um, yes. And so the hierarchy, so, so, and actually I missed this when, when we were talking about this paper originally. So you're looking at damage to um, patients with damage to perirhinal cortex, which is really um, specific to sort of these object conjunctions and object complexity. But then in, in, in our daily experience, we're not only looking at isolated objects on a blank screen. We have, you know, scenes and backgrounds and time and when things occur. And so it's the next stage, which is the hippocampus, which is sort of the same logic of integrating complexity and linking a holistic view together. But you're adding in things beyond visual objects. Is That's that right? right. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So it's this this the this representational hierarchy that starts in the simplest form in V one. There's line orientations and moves forward, forward, forward through the brain. Representations of increasing complexity. They get to the perirhinal cortex where we have these object representations across different viewpoints, the meaning of objects, and then the final station in this pathway would be the hippocampus, where we have objects in scenes and the kind of the complex arrays that make the world around us really this this like the rich spatial representation um, that makes that makes our worlds and a lot of times like again sort of the textbook uh, view of the hippocampus focuses a lot on episodic memory and your memory for specific events and sort of in the context of what you're how you're describing this in a way the the time at which a thing occurs is part of this the holistic view so that gets linked right the the unique episode is one of the features of a thing 
Exactly. That, right. Okay. So like I, I had yes. cereal for breakfast this morning. I've had cereal a lot of mornings. I've had breakfast a lot of mornings. I've seen a lot of mornings, but I have to put together all of those features to make like my unique memory of the cereal I had this morning. And exactly. so if you, so patient HM who has hippocampal damage has trouble linking those together. So he may be able to do a lot of the lower level individual, um, you know, perceptual computations or, or whatever he can, he can perceive the world around him, but is unable generally to link those into, into events because, because of the hippocampal damage. Exactly. He, it's all a blur, right? So what made, you know, this particular, what unique things happened to you this particular morning, uh, at breakfast time that made it different from all the other times that you've had breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um, that is what the hippocampus is doing. These unique, um, representations of events, uh, that make them distinct that, that, that keep those memories from sort of blurring and sort of receding into these just like schematic representations of just, it was a breakfast. I must've had cereal and milk. And I imagine that one of the toddlers spilled something on the floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, what we've been talking about here with the uh, hippocampus uh, and the fact that it's so critical in episodic memory. So being able to remember the events of our lives and keep, uh, these events from blurring together. So being able to, you know, remember the different instances in which, you know, you, you have breakfast or you play with your grandson or, um, uh, to, to, to keep those individual moments unique and remember what is special about them. Um, that is something that the hippocampus is absolutely essential for. And unfortunately, you know, the hippocampus is a very vulnerable part of the brain. Uh, so it's um, really vulnerable to brain damage. Um, it's vulnerable to all sorts of diseases like Alzheimer's disease. And even over the course of normal, healthy aging, there are very striking declines in hippocampal function that are associated with uh, impairments in episodic memory. So this ability to, when I say episodic memory, what I mean is this ability to richly remember the events of our lives, being able to travel back in time and relive them as though they were, you know, happening again, remembering the distinct elements of different events that make them unique and make them special. Um, and that ability that so many of us take for granted is something that can gradually slip away as we age, um, or as we, uh, succumb to disease, or even just as we're stressed and not paying attention to the events of our lives. And, um, these events can start to blur together. So kind of, I got to a point in my career where, you know, I'd, uh, achieved tenure, and I felt like I was a part of and witness to a lot of amazing basic neuroscience research that told us about how the brain supports memory and what the hippocampus is doing to support memory and, you know, what the brain is doing when we first learn a memory and how that memory is saved in the long term. And I'd also spent a lot of time working with patients that had memory disorders and they'd been so generous in terms of sharing their time and so hopeful 
that our research was going to help them. And I thought, you know what, like, it's time for me to actually take these advances in basic science and, and try to build something that actually does help them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we pivoted, uh, or uh, I, I guess I shouldn't say a, a pivot, we sort of grew and there became a new research arm in my lab. And um, this was a collaboration with Chris Honey, uh, who was a faculty at University of Toronto at the time. He's now at Johns Hopkins and a very brave postdoc at the time, Chris Martin, uh, who's now faculty at Florida State University. And we said, it was a crazy, crazy idea, but can we build, can we take the computational power, this incredible computational power that we all have sitting in our pockets in the form of a smartphone And can we take the incredible knowledge that we've gained about what the hippocampus, how the hippocampus supports memory, can we put those two things together and build a device that can compensate or at least mimic what the hippocampus is doing uh, to support a memory? Can we build an external hippocampus that compensates for this hippocampal damage that is so common? Uh, And so what we uh, affectionately call the hippocamera uh, was born. And it's a smartphone-based device um, that's designed to mimic the hippocampus and support memory for everyday uh, events. This smartphone-based app um, allows users to record and replay uh, daily events in a manner that mimics what the brain is doing when we first learn a memory. And at every step of the way, when we design this device, we have tried to integrate established principles from cognitive psychology about how we can maximize learning. Um, so let me just, before I go into the nitty gritty about what the hippocamera is, in order to understand how it works, let me just take a step back and let's think about how the brain enables memory. So we have memory for older events and memory for recent events. And these memories tend to be supported in different ways by the brain. So memory for recent events always require your hippocampus to be encoded and remembered. However, with time, aspects of these memories can be learned and supported by other uh, neocortical regions of the brain, other parts of the brain that are sort of on the outside of the brain, um, not very deep in inside the brain where the hippocampus is. So over time, these memories can be learned by other parts of the brain. They no longer need the hippocampus to be, to be remembered. And this is a really important point. And it, it maybe makes, uh, maybe makes sense if you've ever interacted with somebody who has Alzheimer's disease about the sorts of things they remember and the sorts of things that they can't. So one really important point to note is that neural decline is not uniform across the brain. So different parts of the brain decline at different rates in healthy aging or in disease. So the hippocampus naturally declines with age and it's severely affected by Alzheimer's disease. But these other neocortical regions on the brain's outer surface are relatively preserved. So what this means is those recent memories that require the hippocampus are most affected by aging and Alzheimer's disease. But those older memories that can be supported by these neocortical regions on the brain's outer surface are spared. And so, you know, if you spend time talking with somebody who has Alzheimer's disease, they can tell you all about their distant past 
They remember, you know, their wedding, their childhood, and they'll go on and on about it, but they can't remember what they had for breakfast. They can't Mm -hmm. remember what happened yesterday. So it is this, the fact that, um, different, that different types of memories are supported in different ways by the brain and that brain damage is not uniform in the brain. It disproportionately affects certain parts of the brain over others that leads to this vulnerability of recent memories. So, so why are, why is it the case that these recent memories are so dependent on the hippocampus, but with time, they can be supported by neocortex. And there's something so cool, I think, that happens in the brain. So when a memory is first being learned, there's this very important process in the brain called hippocampal replay. And this is essential for that memory uh, to be um, stored in the long term. So what seems to be happening with hippocampal replay? It seems as if past experiences are being played out again in our brain. So the hippocampus is like, playing out again, the events that have happened to us yet on fast forward. So if you look at the patterns of, of firing in the hippocampus, you can see they mimic, they, they're, they're a match to the same patterns of firing that happened when that experience was, you know, happening in real life at the, when it was, when it was first being encoded. And then at a quiet point of rest, we see those same firing patterns being reinstantiated at an accelerated rate. So it's almost like you take a video of the, the hippocampus is taking a video, an event that's happening. And then when you're sleeping or at a, a quiet point of rest, it's playing that video on fast forward. And it's thought that these replay sessions are teaching the memory to other neocortical brain regions. And with this repeated replay, there's this more robust representation um, across the hippocampus and the neocortex. And with time, the neocortex can kind of take over these brain, the, these memories. But the neocortex can't do that if the hippocampus isn't replaying in the first place. So that's where our app steps in. We wanted to mimic this process of hippocampal replay and, and compensate for that damaged hippocampus. So we'll capture these memories, and then we're going to replay them. We're going to capture them with our smartphone and we're going to replay them with our smartphone um, to our users so that other parts of the brain can take over. They can learn these memories and come to support them without assistance of this digital memory. So, so from like a practical standpoint, I'm going to have this app on my phone. And if there's Mm -hmm. something I think I might want to remember, like, um, uh, well, one of my kids is doing something cute or just, just being themselves, right? I could take a little video of that event uh, and describe it. And then I'm going to, I'm going to replay it later to sort of help me remember it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, and we're going to, you are going to create a little video. We're going to speed it up. Um, we're going to ask you to give a, an audio tag, so a, a principle called a self-generated cue. So, Um, you leveraging your personal knowledge, you saying, you know, even just the act of saying, this is important. My kids are doing something cute and I want to remember that. Mm -hmm. That intentionality is very, very important in kind of breaking this cycle of like this mindlessness with which we live our lives. So just stopping and paying attention and saying, this is something important to me. Now I'm going to describe it. I'm going to take eight seconds. I'm going to say what's happening. And then I'm going to take a video of this and then our app is going to is going to speed that video up it's going to overlay the audio cue 
And then in these replay sessions, it's going to stitch that cue of your kids doing something cute with other videos that you've taken that share, let's say, a spatial uh, a spatial context or a temporal context or that share common elements. It's going to stitch them together into a series of five events that create a coherent narrative mm. about the events of your life, things that have happened um, that... Uh, that, that embed even a single event in, in the broader context of, mm. of what you've been doing. So that's sort of like just anecdotally um, a lot of advice about how to remember things is it's, it's hard to remember something without any context. And so, so giving, giving something you want to remember more context is generally helpful, right? So like a, a list of items at the grocery store can be hard to remember, but if you sort of see them interacting with each other or, you know, in a, in a silly kind of scene that gives it some context that helps you remember it later. And so this is sort of like the super duper version of that where you have um, like high context events already, but then you're putting them in, in, uh, in even more context, right? Exactly. I mean, it seems like the motivation um, for the HIPAA camera may have come out of memory disorders and helping people with severe memory difficulty but, but actually it's probably useful for, for all of us. Absolutely. Um, you know, and I use my HIPAA camera every day. And, and I found that during the uh, lockdown with, the, um, with our most recent pandemic, um, it was really important to me uh, because the days just blended together. And that mm-hmm. was very unsettling, you know, kind of looking up and being like, what day is it? What have I done? Like everything, there were none of those contextual boundaries, those, mm-hmm. uh, those um, cues that we can use. Cause we were just in the same place all the time with the same people. And it mm-hmm. felt like nothing was changing mm-hmm. and we didn't have those anchors to, to mark time or, or change. You know, we didn't have that scaffold for making sense of, uh, to, to, to attach the different events of our lives because it was just all in this like amorphous blob of the sameness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started using the HIPAA camera pretty religiously then. Um, and every day, at least once a day, I would focus on something unique that happened that day. Mm-hmm. And I would go through the day kind of looking for it. Like what's going to be my special event today? And I'm so glad that I did that because it forced this um, introspection about, you know, what is the unique things? What are the things that are important to me? Um, and going back and watching it, um, I was like, you know, my my life actually is, it, you know, is more interesting. I am doing things. Uh, there, there, you know, my kids are growing. They're doing cute things, even though they're driving me crazy right now. Like, actually, look at them. Like, mm-hmm. this was an amazing thing that they did, and I captured it, and now I'm going to reflect on it. That's very cool, and I like. I mean, of of course, I'm um, I'm duly impressed that it's built on these foundational principles of psychology and cognitive neuroscience. But also, it just seems like encouraging one to be a little bit more mindful and reflective, like has other benefits even beyond, you know, the nominal memory improvement, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And the next step, I want to um, start thinking about how mood disorders. um, Mm -hmm. So depression is associated with alterations in, um, in memory for daily events. Can we, by, by, 
this intentionality by focusing on the events of our lives, by trying to combat that blurring of everything and that sort of anhedonia of just like everything is the same, but, you know, focusing on a positive event that you wish to remember and then actively trying to remember that, um, can that improve uh, well-being? Well, if anyone wants to try the HIPAA camera for themselves, uh, the links to that and other things we talked about are at thebrainmadeplain.net. Uh, and I'd encourage you to try it out. Morgan, thanks so much for uh, joining me today and, and for sharing about your work. Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure to be here. All right. Bye, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes, tell a friend who might enjoy it, and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts to help other people find it. You can also support The Brain Made Plain on Patreon and get access to longer interviews and other goodies. Go to patreon.com slash brainmadeplain. As always, links for every episode can be found on the website, thebrainmadeplain.net. Thanks for listening.